Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you much indeed for coming. Lovely turnout. It is actually sold out, although no money's changed hands, so there may still be a few stragglers, and uh, we'll let them slip in, shall we? My name is Chris Mann from BBC Radio Cambridgeshire, and uh, I'm the, the chair of this debate. We've got a very high-class panel waiting to talk to you, and you will have your opportunity to put questions and comments to them uh, after you've heard what they have to say. Uh, this is part of the Festival of Ideas, of course, and um, fantastic to be involved in this. Uh, I think this is the fifth year I've done the debate here, and you're you're definitely the best-looking crowd, really fantastic. So well done on that. Um, so the subject matter tonight is Europe in the Age of Extremes, uh, with huge internal and external pressures facing the European Union, including the rise of nationalist and populist movements of all types across Europe, both inside the EU and outside, as well as the power struggle going on for control of Europe. Can it survive? That's the question for the panel tonight. Um, I'm a local journalist with BBC Radio Cambridgeshire, but I was once the Moscow correspondent uh, living there in the 80s during the Cold War for ITV and for uh, CNN in America. Um, on the panel are people who are experts on all parts of Europe, starting this uh, side with Professor John Bruley, who's the Emeritus Professor of Nationalism and Ethnicity at the London School of Economics. He's the author of a pioneering work called Nationalism and the State, which was published in 1982. He is co-editor of the journal Nations and Nationalism, and his latest book traces nationalism as a political ideology traveling around the world. Uh, John will focus on comparing nationalism in contemporary Europe with that in interwar Europe. Uh, what is similar? What is different? And what use might such comparisons be for understanding the current state of affairs? So Professor John Bully will be up first. Then Timothy Less, who's uh, um, next was a diplomat for 10 years for the UK, now a researcher in the Department of Politics and International Studies, leading a research project called the New Intermarium, examining the effect of Europe's shifting geopolitics on the continent's east. And he will speak about the implications of the crisis in Europe for Eastern Europe and Balkans. And Timothy, as I said, was a diplomat working for the UK in some of those countries in days gone by. Uh, our third panellist um, has two titles. You can call her Baroness Smith of Newnham, if you like, or Dr. Julie Smith. She is both. Uh, an academic specialising in European politics, a Liberal Democrat politician. She is a life peer, member of the House of Lords, uh, which is a member of the International Relations Committee. Uh, Julie was head of the European programme at Chatham House from 1999 for four years. And uh, Julie will speak about the threat to Liberal democracy, represented by the authoritarian turn, outside and inside Europe and the liberal response to this. And the final member of the panel at uh, the far side is Ian Cairns, former deputy director of the think tank, the Institute for Public Policy Research. He co-founded the European Leadership Network. Uh, this is a high-level political, military and diplomatic network uh, drawn from across greater Europe and focused on conflict prevention and crisis management. His new book is called Collapse, Europe After the European Union. Uh, it was published earlier this year. I'm sure he's brought copies with him. And Ian will speak about the central thesis of his new book, uh, which could, what could happen if the EU collapses and why or how it should be defended. So that's your panel. And as I said, you will all have an opportunity to ask questions of them and put your points of view a bit later on. Uh, we're getting underway now, and we're scheduled to finish at 7.30. So let's first welcome Professor John Bully to the stage. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm an historian, so with a particular interest in nationalism. So I'm going to focus on that 
aspect uh, of the question. First of all, one needs some kind of general characterization of what one means by the term nationalism because it's a term that's used very indiscriminately. I basically mean people who will agree with three propositions and possibly get involved in politics in order to see these propositions realized. First of all, that there is such a thing as the nation. Secondly, this nation is a very worthwhile group in which one should feel some sort of pride. And thirdly, one should engage in actions to protect this nation, to uh, create, uh, ensure that it's autonomous, that it has control, uh, and so on and so forth. The second thing I would say as an historian um, is that as a popular widespread sentiment or sense of identity, as a coherent political ideology, uh, or as a collective political movement of significance, this is very modern. Uh, by modern, I mean the last 150 years, but from an historian's point of view, that is pretty recent. There are debates about just how modern it is and what's modern about it and why it only occurred in modernity, but I want to stress that straight away because there is a tendency for us to think of being national as perfectly natural. Um, and of course, it may feel perfectly natural in our world, but it didn't feel perfectly natural in most human beings' worlds uh, over most of uh, recorded history. <coughs> when we come to look at nationalism, even with a rough definition and saying it's fairly modern, there's still lots of different things that we might mean by this term. And I just want to focus on four distinct meanings. First of all, and, and these are roughly in sequence as well. First of all, there is nationalism in a world where there are no nations or nation states, which is a world that existed until fairly recently. Uh, and in this world, the point of nationalism is to create nation states out of non-nation states, particularly out of imperial states. So for example, when we refer to Greek nationalism in the early 19th century, we are referring to the attempt to create a Greek nation state out of a part of the Ottoman Empire. And by and large, this was the dominant form that nationalism tended to take in the 19th century and up to the First World War. The second wave of nationalism comes, in a sense, in reaction against the successes of the first wave. After the First World War, a whole bunch of nation states, as they were called, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and so on, were established in Central Europe uh, in the territories that had been controlled by the defeated imperial states. But some nationalists, other kinds of nationalists, objected to this because they felt it was done at their cost, particularly Germans, um, in a different way, Italians, Hungarians, and so on. So a second wave of nationalism, in a sense, aimed to once more create empires, only now they were empires with a militant nationalist movement at the core of them. The, the Third Reich and its race empire, the, uh, f the f wide Asian empire of Japan, uh, and so on. Now, by the time these movements were defeated in 1945, the term nationalism was being used almost exclusively for what they stood for. In fact, E.H. Carr famously wrote a book called Nationalism and After in 1945, and there was no question mark at the end of the title. Nationalism had been defeated. We then tended to 
save the term for, for other movements trying to create nation states again out of empires, particularly in the European overseas empires, they were called something different. They were called national liberation movements, colonial nationalist movements. But they were nationalist in the sense that they were also motivated by this idea of nation. So there's those two kinds of nationalism. The third kind of nationalism is what I'm going to call after a book published recently by a man called Sinisa Milesevic, is called Grounded Nationalism. By that, he means a world in which the nation-state is so all-pervasive that most people, most citizens of that nation-state, believe themselves and are proud to think of themselves as members of the nation. And polls, numerous polls across Europe, across Asia, across the Americas and so on, show most citizenries in most nation-states feel proud of being national. Now, if by nationalist that's what we mean, just about everybody's a nationalist. And therefore, to call one set of people a nationalist is pretty meaningless because everybody is pretty much a nationalist. So that brings us to the fourth meaning, which is the one that's often used nowadays, the so-called new nationalism or whatever. And obviously, it's got to be qualified because this grounded nationalism, this pervasive nationalism, you have to distinguish this specific form from this generalised form. And it's usually qualified with a bunch of other words. Far right, extremist, right wing, populist, ethnic, and so on. And that's part of the problem. There are so many qualifying terms. Just which of these terms is supposed to grasp what this new nationalism is about? And given that these terms are not all the same, they actually refer to different things, it's possible that we might apply one term and not another. For example, populist nationalism, but one can also talk about so-called left-wing populism. So populism isn't necessarily to do with nationalism. Nationalism isn't necessarily to do with populism. So there's all kinds of complications. But to some extent, we're going back, I would say, to that position that E. H. Carr occupied in 1945. That is that we think of nationalism as just one bit of the spectrum of nationalism, and we then use the term in a fairly indiscriminate way. If we are comparing that, what I call imperialist nationalism or fascism in the interwar period with this so-called right-wing or populist, I'm going to call it illiberal nationalism. I find that the most precise term. Um, what are the major differences? Well, one major difference is that there is no significant international dimension to illiberal nationalism today in the way there was in the interwar period. There is no major revisionist power such as Germany, such as Japan, to a lesser extent Italy, who want to not merely create a stronger sense of illiberal nationalism within their own territory, but they want to change state boundaries, they want to change state institutions, and so on. Also, a lot of what we call illiberal nationalism today, it seems to me, is not so much a coherent movement, regimented, perhaps with a paramilitary wing, aiming to take power, it's much more uh, civil, um, civil in the sense of not um, civilised, but civil in the sense of not wearing uniforms. Um, it frequently aims more to influence opinion and policy rather than to uh, take power. Also, just to say something briefly about what we know about these forms of nationalism. The historian of fascism knows quite a lot about the leaders, the parties, their calculations, and so on and so forth. And of course, they also know something that we just, by definition, cannot know, 
they know what comes afterwards. And that changes their way of looking at things. Today, I think we know far less about the party leaders and the party calculations and so on. We know huge more about what political scientists call the demand side. There were so many surveys and polls, as well as numerous elections, and so much more freedom of opinion than there was before uh, the war, that we know a huge amount about how people say they think about politics, why they vote for this party or that party, and political scientists are now running very sophisticated statistical tests. Yeah. So we, we, we know different sorts of things. Finally, there are real problems about generalising. Historians know that one case is very different from another. Um, the problem with the generalisations is that they sort of smash all these differences. And trying to understand that today is very difficult, and that's much more the task of my three colleagues, I think. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to start by saying that I'm an optimist in most aspects of life, uh, with the great exception of European politics. And I'll make five points uh, to try and explain what I mean. I don't claim to know the future, but I have a sense that Europe is approaching a kind of seismic shift of the kind that happens uh, once every few decades. For example, in 1914, 1939, 1989, I see early warning tremors of a kind of impending earthquake uh, from civil unrest, the rise of rejectionist politics, Brexit, secessionism in the Mediterranean. Most importantly, there is something in the air which I'm sure we can all feel, a kind of intangible quality, a mixture of frustration, anger and foreboding, which is manifest in the rise of intolerance and extremism. I can hypothesize about the reasons for this, but I think they are the fundamentals. The end of the Cold War and the opening of Eastern Europe the advances made in technology and communications, and the transformation of the old third world into a new economic powerhouse. In short, everything that we call globalization. And my suspicion is that Europe's day of reckoning will come uh, sometime next decade when it faces a new recession, uh, which will be more severe than the last. My second point is that I very much doubt that the European Union, as we know it, can survive this shift, and it may not survive at all. Not wishing to preempt what Ian will say about his collapse scenario, it strikes me that the European Union is an institution which was designed for an era which has now vanished. When Europe was merely Western Europe, uh, a sheltered enclave behind an impregnable iron curtain and its emphasis on freedom in both the domestic and the international sphere uh, is ill-suited to the kind of changes which have followed since then. Its promotion of open trade and investment has latterly led to the collapse of traditional economic sectors, loss of jobs, breakdown of communities, falling living standards and growing economic insecurity. 
and its commitment to open borders has allowed millions of people from poor parts of the world to settle in Western Europe, causing psychological stress to host populations and putting unsustainable pressure on housing and resources. Regardless of your own political views on these matters, what is clear, looking at opinion polls, the results of elections, the terms of debate, is that this is intolerable to many Europeans. My third point is that what happens now depends, with the only certainty being that things will not continue as they are now. Potentially, the rejectionist forces in the European Union, emerging from places like Hungary, Poland, Romania, now Italy, will take control of the European Union and transform it into a looser union of independent states, perhaps a kind of United Nations for Europe, although it's hard to see how they can adapt the Eurozone to that kind of model of integration. Alternatively, we may see the European Union paralysed, unable to move forward or retreat, leading to processes of decomposition and decay as states pursue problems, uh, solutions to their problems outside of the EU structures. Or perhaps the EU could split uh, as core Europe, that is France and Germany, plus a handful of like-minded states uh, either secede or expel the rest, uh, starting with Hungary. Or the EU could simply collapse as a massive recession creates a crisis that simply cannot be resolved by other means other than states breaking away and pursuing solutions at the national level. My fourth point is that the crisis in the European Union is not the only dramatic development taking place in Europe, uh, even if it is the most important one. There is also the so-called new Cold War with Russia, a complex struggle about belief systems and the control of territory, which picks up where the old Cold War left off. And there is chaos in the Middle East and the rise of Turkey as a great power in the Eastern Mediterranean. And the implications are for Eastern Europe, the area I specialize in, and which sits at the epicenter of these three ge geopolitical crises, will be huge. If the European Union wanes, as I'm hypothesizing, Eastern Europe could be divided between Germany, Russia, and Turkey, which carve out informal empires in the region, as happened in the 19th century. Alternatively, a power vacuum could emerge, as happened after the collapse of communism, leaving the region prone to nationalist rivalry, political extremism, and conflict. Or it is possible that its various members uh, could form new organizing structures to replace the EU and face down the threat posed by Russia and Turkey. And my fifth point, uh, because I should make <coughs> special mention of the Balkans, uh, the region in which I focus on mm -hmm. most closely. It seems to me that the 
fragile states of Bosnia, Macedonia, and Kosovo only exist because of the determination of the Europeans uh, backed by the United States to hold them together against their will, against the will of, the, of their minority populations, which would prefer to live in nation states where they would have security and rights. If the European Union loses its grip on the Balkans, which I think is likely, then it also loses its power of veto uh, on discontented minorities, such as the Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats, and the Albanians of Macedonia, breaking away from their adoptive states and joining their mother state. And since this process is unlikely to happen peacefully, then the implication is conflict. For Europe, the question then is whether the drama can be contained or whether, as happened in 1914, a new conflagration in the Balkans draws in the great, great powers and sparks a wider confrontation that encompasses the entire continent. Okay, I will leave it there. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. That wasn't a dramatic pause to pour the water, but after all of that, perhaps that's what we need. A festival of ideas. It sounds so exciting, so lively. And one might have hoped for something positive. You might have thought you were coming out on a cold October evening to be inspired, to think that the future of Europe is something positive, something to which we can all aspire and think about a future where we all work together. But it's very often suggested that it is bad news that sells newspapers. Newspaper journalists don't want to hear good news stories, they want to hear the bad news. And you've all decided to attend a session called Europe in an Age of Extremes. You didn't come to hear something about the European Union, the peace project. The sort of issue that I studied when I was an undergraduate in Oxford and when I started my doctorate and came to Cambridge to teach European politics. People said, oh, Europe, and they sighed a little bit and looked away. So peaceful Europe, the sort of Europe that I studied because I believed in a peace project, isn't necessarily one that gets people out of bed in the morning because it isn't necessarily exciting and interesting. So what we've got this evening are four speakers all of whom have variations on themes that might sound negative. Nationalism is very often portrayed in the liberal media as being something that we might be a bit cautious about, not something that's grounded nationalism in the way that John suggested, which sounds actually something we, we all have a nationality, but something mostly that is portrayed as being perhaps slightly dangerous phenomenon. And certainly if we look to Central Europe, the idea of nationalism in Hungary is being used as a way that fosters the authoritarian twist. So John was talking about nationalism. 
Ian is supposed to be talking about collapse. Timothy gave us collapse, authoritarianism, nationalism, crisis, all in one talk. And somewhere in the middle, I think I'm supposed to be the optimistic bit of the sandwich. <laughs> I'm meant to talk about the liberal responses to some of these things. But I was asked to talk about the authoritarian turn in Europe and beyond, the challenges to liberal democracy, the response of liberals, and somehow come out of all of this saying there is a positive future. But I would like to take a few steps back and say, for many years, the bit almost between John finishing his thoughts, the nationalism of E.H. Carr of 1945, and Timothy coming up with the post-Cold War Europe, we had a quarter of a century where Europe was, or half a century, where Europe moved to peaceful cooperation in Western Europe where many states were willing to pool sovereignty. They were willing to go beyond the nation and accept that cooperation could be mutually beneficial. Peace, prosperity, and security was what underpinned the European project. And it was a visionary project. Right across Western Europe, that is what citizens and elites together thought, that cooperation was the way forward beyond the nation state. The United Kingdom never quite bought into that set of values, which is one of the reasons why we stayed out until 1973. But we had a European order and a Western order from the late 1940s through to the end of the Cold War that was based on a, an international rules-based order, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law, the UN, NATO, the EU, the IMF, the World Bank. And it was a world that was actually much safer than it is now, where we didn't get out of bed most of the time and worry about our neighbors or about terrorist threats, with a few exceptions. But we did have the existential threat of mutually assured destruction. But in the aftermath of the Cold War, the European <coughs> Union comes to the fore as the normative power that countries of Central and Eastern Europe were aspiring to join. They were aspiring to the values that the European Union had established. Liberal democracy, human rights, the rule of law. And the European Union said, this is what we want to do. We want to transform Europe. We want to work to ensure that Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia as it was until partway through the process, the Baltic states will transform and look like us. Europe as a normative power exporting its values of liberal democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And for many years, that appeared to be working very effectively. We had countries aspiring to join the European Union, and we had countries that were seeking to say, we are meeting your standards. Right across Central Europe and the Western Balkans, and also Turkey. And the European Commission said, look, enlargement, this policy of bringing in new member states, has transformed Europe. It's our most successful tool of foreign policy. We don't need a European army. We don't need the tools of, of military might. We can do it through diplomacy. We can do it through soft power. 
And then, over the course of the last decade, we have seen country after country begin to challenge that. It started most obviously in Hungary, not just a return to nationalism, but one to authoritarianism, where Viktor Orban, who started off as a great hope, a young leader, a young liberal leader, leading Fidesz, a party where you had to be under 35 to be a member. But as Orban got older, and as the Fidesz members got older, so the age limit rose and rose. And the commitment to liberalism and democracy was shaken. And that is something we've seen not just in Hungary, but in Poland and increasingly across Central Europe, but also in some West European states as well. And what we're finding is not the liberal response, but a liberal silence that the European Union, rather than taking Hungary and Poland to task, in the case of Poland, it's about the rights of judges, the age at which they can retire, changes to the Constitution. And the European Union's response has been too quiet. Now, finally, Hungary and Poland are being taken to the European Court of Justice to be challenged for this disrespect of liberal democracy. But there is a real challenge to liberalism, and there is a huge opportunity and a need for liberals to stand up and say, constitutional rights must be supported. The rule of law is essential. And in order to support what we've always valued in the European project, we need to stand up to dictators and those who want to move towards authoritarianism but it's a huge challenge, and I'm going to leave the challenge, I hope, to questions, because I'm not sure that as a Liberal Democrat, I can give you quite the optimistic solution that you might be looking for, but I can at least raise the things that we should be thinking about. So, food for thought, I hope. Let's see what's coming next, uh, because Ian's book is called Collapse. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I should say that the, the first sentence of my book is that this book is a warning, not a prediction. But you don't write 75,000 word warnings if you don't think they're necessary. I should also say that it's not an academic book, it's a political book. And in that sense, I would argue that it does have at least uh, an outer lining of optimism. The book, in writing it and researching it, uh, I think produced in me a pessimism of the intellect in the sense that I cannot see a way out for the European Union from its multidimensional crisis. Having said that, and as I'll go on to say, I think the consequences of the European Union's collapse will be so catastrophic if it happens that I have some optimism of the political will in the sense that we have to take this warning seriously, we have to organise and act on it politically, and if I were to say what that means in the context of British politi politics, rather than having voted for Brexit, we should have gone for Remain and reform the European Union to help it survive into the rest of this century. Um, my book has four propositions. Proposition number one, that the European Union is hugely vulnerable. It suffers from a great many internal weaknesses and divisions and a number of external and serious external threats. It's divided on how to manage the Eurozone. Uh, 
Macron has suggested a fiscal union. He's getting no support for a fiscal union whatsoever, despite a few warm words, for, uh, but no action from Berlin. The European Union is badly divided uh, along quite toxic lines between creditor countries and debtor countries. Uh, really uh, grim politics between countries like Italy and Germany, between Greece and Germany. It's divided on how to manage the challenge of migration. It's divided on how to respond to Putin uh, uh, in Russia and on the wider security agenda. It's threatened by Putin from the east, who is using a variety of hybrid warfare tactics, cyber attacks, disinformation campaigns, as well as occasional use of paramilitaries and so on in places like Ukraine, but essentially to intimidate people, but also to buy influence through corrupt financial flows. He's engaging in state capture of a number of East European members of the European Union in order to destabilize it. The European Union is threatened from the south by all of the turmoil and by the potential of the increased migration flows, which, as I said, the European Union is divided on in terms of how to respond and manage. We've seen already the extent to which large migration flows have radicalized European politics in an illiberal direction. Astonishingly, in the last couple of years, the European Union has become threatened from the West. Trump doesn't like the European Union. As long as he's in the White House, he's a danger to the institution. Every time a major European uh, Union leader goes to Washington, Trump sits them down and says, why don't you leave the European Union? We'll give you a fi fantastic trade deal. He welcomed Brexit. He said he thought others uh, should vote for the same outcome. He's encouraged others to do so, and one of his chief former lieutenants, is busy, Steve Bannon, is busy touring Europe trying to build an illiberal international, praising politicians like Le Pen, uh, Salvini in Italy, and others, and so on. The European Union is deeply vulnerable. The second proposition is that it's possible from here, and I do this in the book, identify a number of plausible trigger scenarios that could lead to its collapse from where we are today. Three or four of those uh, lead to a new Euro crisis. This could be something as simple as a new recession, as we've already heard uh, this evening. It could be uh, a new financial crisis, and if you read the financial pages carefully enough, there's a warning from a serious heavyweight policymaker about once a week right now that we're heading for a new financial crisis. It could be a populist breakthrough in the Eurozone core, and that could be Italy. We're watching that now. A lot of people think, oh, they've been elected and nothing's happened. It's a slow burner, but at any point, the uh, battle between the Italian government and uh, the managers of the Eurozone could erupt and become a serious new crisis for the Eurozone. Even the Catalan crisis, if it goes badly wrong, could lead to a Euro crisis, because if, the Cat if Catalonia becomes independent, <coughs> Uh, if its economy collapses as a consequence, uh, it's the richest part of Spain. Spain will not be able to service its debts. And even a political crisis like that could lead back to uh, a situation in which you have a country like Spain um, pushed to the exit door of the Eurozone because it can't um, sustain its own um, international obligations. All of that is still on the table because despite everything in the last 10 years, none of the attempts to put the Euro beyond doubt None of the attempts to rebuild the architecture of the single currency have actually done the job. The, the Eurozone and the Euro as a single currency is a sitting duck waiting for the next recession, waiting for the next financial or political crisis. The exact same dynamic of the doom loop between banks and state finances exists today as did then. 
There's been a lot of talk about reform, but it hasn't gone far enough. And you will observe, if you look carefully at European Union leaders, what they want credit for is making changes over where the European Union was yesterday, not preparing it for where it needs to be for tomorrow and for today. It cannot and will not survive the next financial crisis or deep recession because all of the same toxic politics is in existence, except even worse. Merkel is weaker. The Italians are in the hands of nationalists. It's not possible to find solutions between the French, the Italians and the Germans that would resolve the, no the next crisis. That's without mentioning more political scenarios like what if Erdogan in Turkey turns back on the migration flow to the European Union. At the moment, we're essentially paying him off to keep migrants in Turkey. Uh, and if he decides, for whatever reason, that he doesn't no longer want to do that, we'll have massive flows coming into Europe again. We can expect major increases in Eurosceptic support if that happens. Proposition number three, if collapse happens and the epicenter will be the single currency, it is not possible to think through a plausible managed unwinding of the European Union. It will be an unmanaged route, <coughs> principally an unmanaged route of the single currency. I have a whole a lengthy chapter in the book about the dynamics of how you try and unravel the single currency. There is no managed approach uh, that can be thought through. You would have a number of things going on at the same time. Uh, a lot of this would be driven by the markets. As soon as it became clear that there was a chance of a major country leaving the Eurozone, um, you would see capital flight, major turbulence on the markets, contagion to other countries in the Eurozone, just as we saw um, last time. The fourth proposition is if the European Union does unwind and collapse, it will have catastrophic consequences. And here, I'm afraid, Timothy's account um, is probably the upside. Um, my argument in the book is that if the euro unravels, Europe will sink into a depression. One of the reasons for that will be that the target two payment system, which is the system on which paying for each other's trade inside the eurozone, will collapse. We won't be able to pay for cross-border trade in Europe. There'll be a depression. The politics that will be built on the back of that, I argue in the book, is a politics of illiberalism. It is a politics of nationalist scapegoating of foreigners, for other Europeans, not foreigners from outside Europe so much. It's a politics that would see the total discrediting of liberal politicians. All of the liberal elites who had built the European Union and defended it would be discredited. And we can expect illiberal and nationalist politicians not just to slag off the international dimension of liberalism, but to go for liberal institutions in their own countries. Because what you will have them saying is that power has been dispersed too much in this country. Everybody tells you has got some excuse why they can't solve your problems. Give the power to me, I'll sort it out for you. We'll see a, retur a return of strong man or strong woman politics. Sure. And, I'm, and, and my last points <coughs> relate to the security dimensions of that collapse. If that scenario comes to pass, <coughs> there will be contamination to NATO. It is not possible for NATO to survive, in my view, the collapse of the European Union in the context of intra-European protectionism, rising nationalism, people blaming each other uh, for problems. NATO, the, the collective security guarantee in NATO would not be worth the paper it's written on. And my last, my last point is uh, that would empower Russia. And what you would have in terms of structure in Europe is, as Timothy said, a return to the balance of power structure that we had in the 19th century, and that didn't end particularly well. Thank you.
Uh, and as somebody who's spent my life looking at two uh, supranational entities which collapse, the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, I can say that it is the moment at which the second state, not the primary state, but the second state, Ukraine and Croatia, failed out, is the moment where the structure was fundamentally destabilized and never recovered after that. <coughs> I think as far as the implications, uh, sorry, the implications of Brexit for the UK, Britain will find a new vocation. Uh, and, and I suspect that it will resume its international role with interests in Europe. And I think, uh, given what I said in my presentation, it will have to become, by necessity, a guarantor of security in Eastern Europe, uh, as it has done uh, in the 19th and 20th century. And Julie, you'll know from your membership of the International Relations Committee and support that Britain, of all European nations, has the best contacts around the world, doesn't it? So will that help in this scenario? That's not funny. You just asked me a different question for everybody else. That's the first question. The first question is how will we fare in all this? Thank you. Because what I've written down in answer, I thought. Well, most of all, thank you. In answer to the, the, the bit of the question about how the UK would fare, when people ask me this, they say, well, you must know what's going to happen. And it's like, well, look, I'm a political scientist. I don't, you know, I don't know how this will go. I can't tell the future. And the, the idea is that a lot of my colleagues are being put on you know, panels and being invited as Brexit experts. And I think that's actually a contradiction in terms. Because I'm not sure how you can be an expert other than being possibly a really good journalist and know what's going on on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. But we don't actually know what's going to happen because there is no precedent. But I think Timothy has now shown us that maybe if you're a historian, you might have a better sense of what's going to happen than mere political scientists. Um, so if it's worth Britain going to be in the world, I think there is a danger that going global is little more than a slogan. I think that we do still reputation for having strong diplomatic service and we are well represented globally but we need to do more and there needs to be a lot more focus in strengthening our traditional alliances but that's also going to be strengthening our embassies in EU member states because the last 40 years our relationships have been done through the European institutions and they're going to have to return to being bilateral institutions. Yeah, your thoughts on um, yeah, I think uh, all this talk of global Britain is just an absolute nonsense. Um, the, the fact is we represent 3% of world trade. When the world trade decisions are happening, we're leaders together at the dinner table. We're not going to be sitting at the table, we're going to be on the menu. The Chinese, the Chinese, we want to be even the Americans being part of what the global trade regime is, if there is a trade regime, because at the moment Trump's trying to destroy the world trade organization. We'll be totally irrelevant on climate change. We're not big enough to have any influence, whereas within the European Union we would have been a major player in terms of trying to deal with um, global regimes to deal with climate change. The idea that we're going to pursue our own independent trade policy, um, I mean, we already have a global trade policy. Just in the last few months, the European Union, of which we're still a member, has done a major trade deal with Japan. We're doing these deals already. And as regards to our role in Europe, not only are we leaving, we have no European strategy. We have, if we were serious about it, I mean, our entire history is entirely Europe. It's going to remain that way. 
even if we do leave the European Union, we ought to be right now thinking about how do we try and have some influence on events inside Europe, which is so crucial to our future. If we're not going to be in the European Union, do we increase our representation at the Council of Europe? Which emphasis should we be building up in terms of uh, bilateral relationships? Can we make a bigger contribution to NATO to try and compensate for what's happening in the European Union? We're behaving as though nothing's happening in Europe, as though we've got no interests in Europe except trade, and we have no national strategy of trying to influence events in Europe whatsoever. Questions from the floor. Centre-left and centre-right, and real politics can take place within that framework. 
John, does common currency affect whether people feel nationalist or not? Does it have any effect? Um, I mean, I, I think I don't quite, quite agree with him. I, I, I mean, Keynes had a solution to this way back in 1946, that it's as irresponsible to run a surplus as it is to run a deficit. But unfortunately, the German position is that they run surpluses, and they're not going to give up on that. Um, and as long as they are, they take that kind of responsibility, although they don't really get blamed for it, the others who get blamed, we regard debtors as irresponsible people, not massive creditors. As long as they won't do that, I can't see a way around it, except coming out of the Eurozone and each country being able to, to change its own currency. In that sense, um, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't see the solution work. So does a common currency bring togetherness or resentment, as in Greece versus Germany? I think at the moment, increasingly, it breeds resentment, as long as it doesn't work because of these disparities. Okay, next question, please. One of the many irresponsible. Just tell us who you are, sir. Sorry, I'll tell you what. Um, just. One of the many irresponsible uh, and foolish aspects of the whole Brexit thing was, the, the, was that all the risks we talked about, we knew about, actually. And yet the Brexiteers uh, did what they did. In other words, they were trying to break up Europe as well as actually damaging our country. And they failed. In the, in the first respect, because actually the EU is held together. And one of the most remarkable things is, despite all of our efforts to play divide and rule, they have come together. And I'm greatly inspired by that, and I'd like to know what your views are. Okay, thank you. Are you hearing all right up there? Yeah, good. Two. <laughs> thank you. I think some of the Brexiteers did indeed want to do what you suggested. And so, well, the UK should leave the European Union. It's a sinking ship and we should get off before it sinks. Or it is a bit like that old um, get, uh, the game Kaplunk, that you have straws. And at some point, one of the straws comes out and all the marbles fall through the, the game and the thing collapses. And in some ways, I think there were some Brexiteers who felt that. There were others who said, Actually, we think the European Union needs to be more integrated in order to work effectively, for the Eurozone to work effectively, for example. And it is, you know, we don't want to be part of that, but we're happy to let the rest of the European Union integrate further. And so I think that there were different views among the Brexiteers. So far, the hopes of those who wanted to finish off the European Union have not been fulfilled. I think there is still a danger. So Timothy may be right to put the massive collapse of the European Union. But at the moment, the 27 have indeed held together. The real issue is going to come when they're negotiating the budget at 27. That is, that is going to be the next real challenge for them. Thank you, Julie. Let's hear the narrative from Timothy. Uh, I don't fundamentally dispute the premise of the question. I'll just make one observation, which is that I think the great danger to the European Union is not that uh, some of its more wayward states like Hungary and Poland uh, will try to leave. The danger is that they insist on staying <laughs> 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 and changing the European Union for 
but within in ways which are necessarily put them in conflict with liberal peers in the West, France, Germany, Scandinavia, Ireland, and Denmark. And then I think you get into these uh, kind of divisions which Ian described very openly in his presentation, which, in my hypothesis, are the seeds of the EU's ultimate demise. Uh, Ian, when you were sipping sherry at your meetings of the European Leadership Network and obviously um, how to get their money out to Switzerland or whatever else, uh, how do you think about a solution that you can actually that they call the business leaders that you give you have these summits with? Um, no, I mean, one of the reasons why I actually took the time to write this book was because I think the danger they're facing is not people like me in a crying wolf, it's the level of complacency that exists. I think there's far too many people, and I'll give you one little nugget. I was sitting next to uh, Dinner in Riga a few weeks ago, a German member of the Bundestag. You, uh, told, I, I said to him, what do you think will happen in the Italian situation if there's a new Euro crisis? What do you think the German government will do in the end? And he said to me, um, in the end, we'll do what we have to do to save the Euro. And I said, including what? And he said, well, we have to do Euro bonds and all of that, we'll do it. And then he paused and he said, of course, the conditions will be very tough. And what he meant was, the Italians will have to soak up another decade of austerity. And I can absolutely guarantee to you that is not politically viable in Italy. And without them sucking it up in Italy, it's not politically viable for the Germans to lend Brian more credit. And this is the problem. That solutions, you know, nobody has solutions, but everyone's complacent at the moment. And I'd say the strategy for saving the European Union is it'll be all right in the night. <laughs> And so the Italian answer historically is to, is to go to the right, but all of that well, happened, you do right. What do you, what do you think? Well, I think we're seeing it right now. We can see what's happening. I mean, it's going in both directions at the same time. You know, there's a left tinge to it and a very strong far right tinge to it. Whatever it is, it's not, it's not European status quo politics. It's a radical diversion. Next question is over here. Thank you. Town Fulton, retired town planner, nothing to do with it. Retired town planner? Yes. A nice town? In the scenario that's been painted about a chaotic collapse of Europe, and the scenario of increasing concentration of global wealth in the hands of a few individuals, do you see a role for the nation state in some sort of control over oligarchs and their international influence. Another elephant in the room. Are you talking about thinking of any state any other oligarch in particular? <laughs> if we knew where they were, maybe <laughs> some <laughs> were Chelsea. Joe or something. I mean I do think we should be thinking in terms of alternatives. We are. After all, in Western Europe, which societies um, we could quite easily redistribute income and wealth to some extent, um, and remain all quite well off, and to some extent get rid of some of the discontent. There are all kinds of, you know, I mean, there's a technocratic solutions, but for example, we can ensure that where there's a big influx of immigrants, there is a big influx of public funds to support new housing and so on and so forth. We, we, we've got, we can pursue policies like this, and pursue in other countries. One of the, my problems is not just that we're, we're terribly related to Europe, we're being terribly governed 
for the last 10, 15 years. We haven't thought of ingenious solutions. We haven't thought about telling more positive stories about what we can do, except the emptiness of the Boris Johnson's, you know, be great again, control again. There are things that we can do. It turns out that, you know, sometimes, as I say, people vote green. People demonstrate for uh, good things. Um, sometimes there's more people who want to do something progressive than people who just want to punish uh, the powerless uh, or the immigrants or whatever. And maybe we should try and build on that. Now, to, let me just tell one little story. Uh, a political scientist colleague of mine uh, got some views about immigration. They were mainly hostile. He then divided the group into three. The first group he said nothing to. The second group got told the story about how increased immigration will increase diversity. And the third one was told a story about how increased immigration will increase assimilation. They were then asked again for their opinions on immigration. And the third group were much less hostile after they heard that story than before. So uh, maybe optimism of the will also includes trying to tell some good stories. And uh, also things don't change, do they? It's probably just a lot of oligarchs today. From my experience, I lived in the Soviet Union, but Russia went into the Soviet Union. And you know, when I was able to go behind the scenes, people lived in fabulous, fabulous lifestyles, wonderful duchess and robes that were just for their huge wealth. And uh, there was an administration that ran it all for them. Those people are still there. And it's just a different set of people with the, with, with the money, although some of the people was, was in power then, in a sense, and he still is today, obviously. Uh, Thank you. Um, it's a very good question, and it's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, so I won't attempt to answer it head on, but I will make one observation, which is that I think if you stand back from the institutional crisis, which various panelists <coughs> described in the European Union, you can also frame this as a crisis of liberalism, as a, as a rejection of the political system under which we've been living for the last 30, 40 years, uh, which is locked in by the European Union. And the kind of um, crisis event which we've been experiencing uh, over the last few years are in some sense a rejection of that system. So that's where we are now. Going forward, if we uh, agree that there is some sort of crisis which is impending, then this creates opportunities uh, for systemic change. But at the moment, it looks as if there are three uh, particular responses to the crisis of liberalism. There is the uh, neo-Marxist response, which is embodied in uh, Syriza, in Greece, Demos, in Spain, <coughs> in Germany, uh, in this country, in, in Corbyn's Labour, then you have the nationalist response, uh, which we see far more prevalently in Europe and in this country, but embodied in uh, Marine Le Pen's uh, now French rally, used to be Front National, Danish People's Party, Alternative for Deutschland, and so on and so forth. And then you have the classical <coughs> liberal response, uh, championed by, in this country, people like Boris Johnson, Daniel Hand motion on the right. And I think uh, it's not quite clear at the moment which of these ideologies is going to prevail if we hypothesize that liberalism is in mind. There's everything to play for. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to make a prediction about this. So, Julia, do you come up to Boris Johnson government then? <laughs>
No, I'm no Green government. Um, and Your party, wasn't it? My, my party was, yes. I don't think any of them too close to Boris, partly because I spent most of the time being mayor of London during the coalition period, so we didn't have to do that. But I thought the question was about the, the resurgence of the nation state and how nation states might actually respond to things. And so I think there is a bit, of, I think there is actually a move back towards people identifying with the nation state, thinking through, wanting national solutions to issues that are essentially global. And it's very difficult to see how individual nation states can effectively legislate and hold oligarchs and others who have the opportunity to move that money around effectively to account. So I think more needs to be done, but I think there are global economic forces and national or subnational political forces that are in tension with each other. Well, I'm not sure if there's an answer to your question or not, but my, my thinking is that we, we need to decide. I mean, we're facing a profound challenge, I think, between how we combine national level democracy with a globalised world economy and all the forces that go with that. And you're seeing this in the European Union context, which is an attempt by two states to come together and, and manage some of this. Um, you're seeing it right there, you know, in the kind of toxic political dynamic in which, which Salvini in Italy absolutely loves. You know, he can say, um, we are not even told by people in Brussels what we, what we in Italy are going to do, what we're going to be allowed to do. You know, and um, it just doesn't feel sustainable to me to have a situation where you say to national voters, go and vote, make a decision, and then after you've elected your government, your government will go to Brussels and see if it can get permission for what it wants to do. I just don't believe that that's sustainable to so the long term. But I think behind all this is we've got to decide what are the things we really do need to cooperate on beyond our own borders. And what are the things that we think we'll be primarily in control of at home. And that's very, very difficult. But earlier I was mentioning uh, if we want a certain kind of trade regime which locks in rights to workers and has environmental protections, we can't negotiate that by being a small country like ours. We have to, we have to do it at scale. You know, at the European Union scale of market, you can say even to China and the Americans, if you want access to our market, here's some rules you've got to play by. And, and so that's one kind of thing. Same on climate change. Other issues, I think, like I mentioned earlier, fiscal policy, um, it's actually it's absolutely crucifying the attempt to build European solidarity. It's become the problem, not the solution. If you're really up there in a moment. There, but first of all, with the microphone, is up there. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. I'm uh, Dan Carter. I did a PhD in uh, Latin American studies several years ago. Um, I also work on uh, Spanish history. Um, and my question is um, regarding, uh, well, particularly bearing in mind the specialism of some people on the panel, uh, the European Union is uh, regularly compared by Eurosceptics to the Soviet Union. And my question is whether the members of the panel, um, if they can explain why this parallel is made and whether they think it's a valid comparison. It's a bad comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I it, uh, when there was a, a vote in the Brazilian, 100% people <laughs> said one thing and nobody disagreed. I, I think there's very, very few comparisons. Um, Any of them take that up? Well, I, I, I don't tell you that. I, I was at the Union Security Conference when Boris Johnson said something similar. 
on a monthly rate. The phrase he used was that he was looking forward to Britain's Brexit liberation. And the president of Lithuania stood up and said to him, listen, mate, I can tell you what liberation is like. Because I experienced it at the end of the Soviet Union. And everybody in the room clapped. That lady, Boris, looked stupid. It was an insulting, <laughs> it was an insulting comparison. It is an insulting comparison. We're talking about a, a dictatorship. With no, with no consideration for individual human life whatsoever, you compare that to the European Union, it's completely absurd. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't deny that, but uh, I think it is factually incorrect to suggest that there is no similarity whatsoever between the EU and the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and I talk here as somebody who spent my time focused on geopolitics, but it was quite clear that both are large supranational entities uh, which derive their legitimacy from a certain ideology and uh, enforce that particular ideology from the centre. Uh, and both of them ultimately suffered a lot of faith in that ideology, which uh, certainly led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, and we're hypothesising today could lead to the collapse of the European Union. But that is where the comparison ends, and I entirely agree with the other observations which people have made about the terror, the oppression, and so on. It was one country oppressing 14 others. Although maybe the similarity is that the Soviet Union collapsed quite suddenly in the way you actually told me the EU might do the same. Well, I, I was, yes, before I um, exploded, uh, about to explode, I think there's a fundamental difference between the 28 countries that are part of the European Union. Because they chose to be there. It is a voluntary union. Six countries initially joined, other countries chose to join. Most of them in recent years have voted to join through referendums, and one of the few countries that didn't vote to join through a referendum has voted to leave, and it, we're not being stopped from leaving. It's a democratic decision. Next question, Daniel. Hello, my name is Ruth, and I spent my first year in Germany in the last 25 years in this country. I hope that we will be clear why I'm asking for the question. It's very different in previous ones. If you had three choice and you had a choice to go somewhere else next year, <laughs> would it be somewhere in Europe and if yes, where, or would you even leave Europe altogether? You don't mean for your holidays, you mean? Who'd like to go first on this one? John? What are you packing your bags for? <coughs> um, I'm, my particular specialism is German history. I've spent lots of time in Germany. And uh, one of the things I've, I've noticed is the way in which different European countries have transformed over a period of time. Um, I, I wish we were more like Germany. I know uh, maybe a lot of people in this room might agree with that. But when you look at the, the scale of the anti-fascist and the anti the anti-right-wing demonstrations in that country, um, the way in which, obviously, after the hubris of the Third Reich, there's been a reaction against it, the way that country has confronted its, its terrible past, or a lot of that country has confronted its terrible past. Um, the problem is, and this goes back to the pessimism um, that, 
others have expressed, I mean, the president of our institutions, but increasingly the president of our attitudes. I think, you know, the, the, the biggest problem we face now is the seeping of liberalism into all our values and our institutions. The reduction of our empathy for the helpless. Um, the, the empathy that comes back occasionally with one terrible image of a young boy dead on the beach. But for the most part, is, is, is lacking. Um, at the coarsening of our public rhetoric. The fact that people can speak like Johnson and not be scandalously exposed in their own culture. Um, and if we go more in that direction, then I would certainly like to find somewhere else that hasn't gone as far as that. So is your job Germany? Um, Ber Berlin is a great place to And obviously there's more chance of seeing world affairs. So you're a promised question that asks whether you feel European, or mostly European, but also the nationality of your own country, or mostly the nationality of your own country, or just your own nationality. <laughs> and all the way through, from being an undergraduate through to 2016, if you'd asked me that question, I'd have said, well, I'm a European, and I put being a European first. But I realised during the course of the referendum that fundamentally I'm embedded in British politics, and I have to stay here and fight. So I regret the result of the referendum more than I can say. I think the idea of Britain being outside the European Union is almost incomprehensible, but I have to stay and fight. And if there's somewhere else that you could go to when you choose something, come on. Bizarrely, one of the places I really like, because I like cold places, is Norway. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a political statement there at all. <laughs> so, so the question, where else do I live up? Yeah, other than gentlemen's Chris, where are you? Are you going to escape? Yeah, it's the end of the world as we know it. Where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I can highly recommend Slovenia. Uh, I've spent many a hat and summer in Croatia, and my life is Estonian, so there's always the option of being out of politics. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, where is sake for collapse? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going nowhere. Um, I think the main battle we face, I do believe, is the main battle we face is between liberalism and illiberalism. I think that's the defining battle of the age we're in. Uh, I think. Uh, in this country at the moment we're losing it, if you're on the liberal side of that battle, and like Julian, I'm staying and fighting. And I believe that the European Union is a gift from one generation of Europeans to another generation of Europeans. They learned all the lessons, and they passed on an institution, however imperfect, which has contributed to the seven most successful decades of peace and progress in European history. And we have to lean in fight in our own country and try and make a positive contribution to the wider picture of Europe so that we don't go back to the hell of the experience before.
particularly like Malaysia, and not European, and not European, like not from the hemisphere. Uh, and uh, it was the constituency coordinator for Hope Leave here in Cambridge, uh, where we didn't get many votes, as you'd be aware, 26.4% of parents were there. Um, so you were already in the press before the moment. Um, I've lived in five European countries, I think, uh, you know, we're doing very well in this one, and uh, I think the EU's done very badly in places like Boston, where we're also used to um, But uh, I agree with Timothy and Ian that um, some kind of collapse is, is very likely. Uh, just one remark on what Professor Bully said, um, the thing that Ireland, Portugal, Spain, and Bavaria have in common in their absence of extremism is their Roman Catholicism, and that was highlighted by a previous panel on this uh, stage a year ago. Um, but my question is, if some form of collapse is inevitable, either of the Eurozone or of the EU, uh, should we not be taking precautions and unwinding some aspects of European integration, such as the Eurozone or supranationalism more generally? Would it not be responsible, given the immense potential consequences, for us to roll back some of European integration and keep the good bits? So your, your thesis is that um, Henry VIII and Carlo to blame for the. Right, we're back to start with the the answer to the question. Yeah. Should not responsible Democrats in the European Union attempt to unwind the Eurozone while there is still time and roll back supranationalism while there is still time? Don't think it's time. Uh, I'd like to just think, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was kind of suggesting that earlier. But I, look, the reason why I said that at the outset uh, that I had kind of pessimism of the intellect or optimism of the political will is that I believe passionately in politics and its ability to change things, but you know I cannot see the solutions which I mean if you can draw a list of reform measures, that's not difficult. Um, it's making them politically viable, it's difficult. But I think we've got to have, you know, John was absolutely right earlier when uh, he said, you know, about the in Berlin particular view of thinking about the Eurozone. Um, but I think we've got to start having this discussion. I think the first phase we've got to get to is um, this is a very, very dangerous situation we are in. And there's too much complacency around. If you can establish the level of risk we're currently facing, I think then perhaps you can get to a decision about what's sensible to do. And I think in, I honestly believe that in Berlin there are passionately committed Europeans who are going to kill the European project because their economic approach to it is stifling the rest of Europe, and we can't break that down of opinion in Berlin. The whole project is doomed. I think the danger of starting to unwind the project deliberately is that, and apart from the fact that I believe that there are fundamental things that can be done to improve the European Union and strengthen it, but even if you take the more negative presumptions of Ian and Timothy, I think if you start to say, well, we must unwind this because it's dangerous, then actually it's a bit like a run on the banks. But once you start to do that, you precipitate more calamitous change. So I think saying, well, let's, let's just have a safe unwinding of this probably isn't going to work. So I'd be sceptical of that approach. Um. Yes, I, I, I accept the premise of your question. To, to, from a certain perspective, the problem with the European Union, particularly the Eurozone, is its half-finished state. 
uh, it's not fully fledged uh, currency zone because it lacks fiscal union, political union to buttress it. So the question, uh, and as and as Ian and others have observed, there is a, a political block in the way proceeding towards its natural destination. So the question is that if the EU can't go forward, then logically it should go into retreat and dismantle the Eurozone in part or in whole. But then, and here I agree with Judy and, and Ian, I just can't see how you do it. Uh, the, 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 in, unless this can be done in, in a, a way which is uh, negotiated down to the finest detail, uh, I, I think the only way in which the Eurozone can, can roll back is, is in unmanaged, disorderly manner, which would pro probably precipitate its, its total collapse. Okay. I just had a question about doing it, um, and um, the, I forget his name now, but the chap with the uh, populists in Italy wanted to make the finance minister and then couldn't. Um, but he, he actually had the answer, and I, the answer is you do it, I know this sounds bizarre, but you do it over the weekend. You literally do it over the weekend. You, before the banks can open, you well, can all too. That's the only way. It's the only way it can be done. And he knew that. He drew, He had a plan. He knew that. You, if you if you let the markets rip, the whole thing will be an unmanaged that. If you if you if you there have been bank resolutions, for example, where a bank's been closed on a Friday night, been completely restructured over the weekend, and open again on Monday with totally new balance sheet. You can do it, but you would literally have to do it over a weekend. And the bank is all the one when we do it. Uh, one final question from the audience, the young lady here, thank you. Um, hi, my name is Julia, I'm an A-level student. Um, and it's briefly mentioned about Trump being very um, anti-EU and sort of trying to dismantle um, world trade. And I just wonder if, um, if he does have an impact on the future of the EU and its collapse, um, and in the long term, he makes a second term. Um, I was just wondering about your thoughts. He's not against Europe, he's just for America, isn't that right? I just don't, I don't, I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, I don't think he quite knows where it's going to go. I mean, for example, I've been reading some things by some China specialists who think that. Um, that in the end they will come to some kind of a deal because they're simply the regime itself, which when I was in Beijing I thought was quite paranoid about its own weakness, um, might think that if too many business interests, too much new middle class in China are uh, hurt by this trade war, it will itself create problems for the regime. So maybe economically it doesn't make sense, but politically it might make sense to come to terms and, and to do some kind of a deal. But I mean, ultimately, we can't do very much about that. It seems to me what my final thing is your argument talking about unwinding, you can talk about reversing. So I say I'm going on this demonstration on Saturday. I think it's going to be a huge demonstration. <laughs> we don't know where the deal's going. I still think we could reverse. Brexit. I think we should think of terms of reversing. Well, 
Thank you very much. 